Buglers, we are live from Leicester Square Theatre on the 16th of September with Chris Addison and Alice Fraser. It might be our only London date of the year, so get your tickets now. Oh, get them at thebuglepodcast.com. That, that bit's important. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello, I'm Andy Zaltzman. Welcome to the Bugle Ashes Zaltzcast. Before we start our review of this sensational, brilliant and in many ways unique Edgebaston test, I'll give you all a bit of time now to think of all the things in the universe, past, present and future, that are better than a good test match. That's all the time you need. Now on with the show. Well, this was one of the most dramatic, intriguing, tension-laced tests in the long history of Anglo-Australiac cricket, and it ended with a baggy greensters, cartoon-perfect captain Pat Cummins and off-spin maestro Nathan Lyon, who between them had bowled Australia to parity against the fundamentalist flamboyance of Stokes's England's batting, concocting one of the great fourth-innings tail-end partnerships in test history to take Australia to victory. They needed 54 to win when Alex Carey was out, but they did it only the fourth time in Ashes history that a team has won after needing 50 or more runs with only two wickets left in the fourth innings. Two of them were in the 1907-08 series. The other was Ben Stokes's match at Headingley in 2019, when Lyon and Cummins were two of the key figures at the end. Lyon's frying pan-handled fumble of a simple run-out chance cost Australia the game, and Cummins was then clatter-splatted for four by Stokes with the winning shot. What did the Edgebaston test tell us about so-called basball? Does it at times hurt England as much as it hurts their opponents? Well, I know they don't like calling it basball. I don't like calling it basball. Stokes and McCullum invented it, so let's call it S&M cricket instead, which is kind of appropriate. Well, I think, in summary, it shows that basball can work and did work, but didn't work quite well enough. Later on in today's Zaltzcast, I will be answering your questions about Edgebaston, and obviously, through this show, I can't cover everything of relevance from the first test, so to keep the show down to a listenable length, I'm going to just pick a few things at random. I've written down all of the talking points and crucial moments from the match on little bits of paper, all of the small and medium and big-sized factors that ultimately decided this game in baggy greenish favour, the dramatic subplots, the character arcs, the backstories, and the pyrotechnic melodramas that coalesced into five days of sinuously fluctuating narrative brilliance, further proof that this summer's Ashes is the must-see binge-watch box set of the year. I've put all 7,249 of these key factors and turning points into this tombola. Uh, I'll just give it a spin and pick a few out. First out of the tombola, a stat. There were 34 innings in this game in which the player reached double figures. That's the fourth most ever in a test, but there were only 70 scores of 50 or more. In England's Second innings, there were 10 double-figure scores, but no one even reached 50. Only the fifth time in Test history that's happened. Over the last two days, 19 players batted. Only Steve Smith 
was out in single figures. There were 17 partnerships, all of at least 10, but the highest was 61. So there were no clatters of wickets, no periods of consolidated batting dominance. There were just constant fluctuations and shifts without the rapid dramatic swings we generally see at some point in a classic test match. England had 19 double-figure scores in this test, including the triple-figure score Joe Root made in the first innings. That's the joint most ever for a team that has gone on to lose a test match. The 19 double-figure scores in the two teams' second innings combined, in which only Zach Crawley and Steve Smith failed to reach 10, is an all-time test record, and there have only been five other instances of there being 19 or more double-figure scores in the second innings in over 60,000 first-class matches. But there was only one second innings half-century, so neither batting nor bowling side was ever truly on top. What can we infer from this? Well, that the pitch was difficult for bowling, new batters weren't particularly vulnerable, but that it was also hard to keep grinding as Australia tried to do without making a mistake at some point or other, trying to force the pace as we saw with Kawaja and Green, played on, trying to run the ball down to third man, Carey caught and bowled, trying to desperately raise the run rate towards the end. It, it told us that Stokes' captaincy in England's bowling until right at the end found ways to conjure wickets out of nothing, that Cummins and Lyon did the same for Australia, and that England's batting approach leaves them always liable to lose a wicket when seemingly taking the upper hand because of the risks that they take. All in all, shit pitch, fascinating cricket. Another stat from Edgebaston that tells of an extraordinary match, an extraordinary clash of styles, is that Australia bowled only eight maidens out of 144 completed overs. Only once in test history has a winning team bowled fewer maidens in a six balls per over test. That was when Australia last year bowled only seven out of only 81 overs when beating Sri Lanka at Gaul. In terms of percentage of maidens out of total overs bowled by a winning team at 5.5% of Australia's overs, this was the lowest by far in the history of Test cricket in matches played with six ball overs and only beaten by one game with eight ball overs when obviously it's harder to bowl a maiden. That was Australia-India in January 1948. Does this mean that Australia's cautious boundary-protecting strategy worked? Well, it sort of worked and didn't work at the same time in that England really should have won this game. But they missed more chances than Australia and Australia punished England more than England punished Australia for those misses. I make it that Australia missed three out of 15 chances in the field one of which was very, very difficult indeed. England missed 8 out of 18 and took a wicket off a no-ball. Of those 8 missed chances, the last 3 were extremely difficult to borderline. Only Stokes could possibly take it in possibility, and Stokes very nearly did take it. But whereas England's reprieve batters and those 3 first innings chances, Bairstow, Brook and Moeen Ali didn't really add a huge amount to their scores after being dropped, Australia really punished England, in particular Kawaja in the second innings, missed in the first over, batted for almost eternity. Next out of the Tombola, well, Pat Cummins' innings. It was the highest fourth-inning score by someone batting nine or lower to win a Test match in the history of Test cricket. He's only the fourth player in Test history to take four wickets in the third innings and then score 40 or more in the fourth to win a game. He's had 15 Tests against England. He's taken three or more wickets in all of them and now four in 13 of those 15. He is truly one of the great cricketers of the millennium, possibly even of any millennium yet. And there's been quite a lot, um, not many in which they've actually played international cricket. Usman Kawaja, 518 balls in the test, the fourth most by an Australian batter in a test in England where balls faced have been recorded. 503 balls he'd managed in his previous seven games combined in England in the 2013 and 19 Ashes and the recent World Test Championship final. In the second innings, 
Kawaja batted five hours and 18 minutes. No other player on either side managed more than two hours, and he faced 197 balls. The next most on either side was Pat Cummins' 73 right at the end. And the key stat, while updating one of the key stats I've been talking about on this show, it was the first time in 27 innings that England have failed to bowl out their opponents. So that is the joint longest run since the 19th century. Only the great Australian side at the start of this millennium have had more consecutive innings in which they've bowled out their opponents. But if they just manage one more, the 27th consecutive innings, then I wouldn't have to say this. Oh, f***! I can't believe we lost that game. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Zoltzcast Q&A. Uh, thank you for sending in some questions, those of you who, on Twitter who saw my uh, request for questions. I will start with this from Nick what is the best, wittiest sledge you've ever heard? Well, uh, as I am up in the commentary box, uh, face down in a computer and writing things in coloured pens on bits of paper, I don't hear many sledges. Uh, in my days playing uh, village cricket, um, I did get sledged once in a village game by someone telling me that I was shit, at which point I pointed out that we were both playing village cricket and therefore we were both shit. So sledges generally lack a bit of subtlety, but I think England missed a great chance to do one of the all-time great sledges by sledging Australia with stats as that run chase got closer and closer they needed to tell them that stat that i told you on this show that australia always lose the close ones going back to 1924 25 the last time they won a real ashes nail biter a game that won by less than 25 runs or three wickets uh, or fewer they needed to have someone under the lid at short leg just feeding stats to sow those doubts in the australian minds i don't know if statistical sledging works but it had to be worth a go so this was the first uh, Australian win in one of those close matches, which I've defined as that close in order to get it back past 1950 to, to the 1920s. But even so, the point basically stands. It's the first time they've won one since the 1924-25 series, and it was the first time they've won by such a narrow margin against an England team not captained by a leading member of the British fascist organisation, as Arthur Gilligan was in 24-25, since 1907-08. This came from Dick, who asked for a cost-benefit analysis of Johnny Bairstow, looking at his averages as when played as keeper and when played as a specialist batter, the cost of his missed chance. Well, I've touched on the missed chances already. They were clearly very costly. Exactly how costly, we'll never know, because you don't know how the alternative universe would have panned out. Over the course of his career, Johnny Bairstow has averaged 37 with the bat when played as designated wicketkeeper. When played not as wicketkeeper, he's averaged... 36, but let's break it down as that designated keeper since the uh, West Indies series that began in August 2017. He's averaging just 26 uh, as a keeper from December 2015 to the end of the South Africa series that preceded that. He averaged 54 
as keeper. His average not as wicketkeeper since January last year, 66. Before that, it was only 27. So what can we read into that? Well, we can read into that essentially that Bairstow has had two productive periods as a test batter in which he's been absolutely world-class, but around those two periods, he's averaged mid to high 20s. When picked as keeper, he averages over 52 in first innings batting first and batted brilliantly on the first day of this game. But in innings 2, 3 and 4 after keeping wicket, he averages just 29 with no hundreds. And in 2022, he had 500s in innings 2-3-4 when not keeping wicket. So this is why I thought this was a high-risk selection, picking Bairstow as wicketkeeper rather than as batter and trying to work out a solution from there. He had put together that run of staggering performances, digging England out of trouble repeatedly with his blend of controlled innings building, then unconstrainable stroke play savagery. And to me, after finally unlocking this dormant destroyer by picking him at five and not keeping wicket, but stats don't tell you what will happen. It might prove to be a long-term masterstroke over the course of this series, but in this game, on balance, it didn't work. Uh, this question came in from Martin Emerson. Uh, hello, Martin. Uh, should the Ashes begin before the summer solstice? Well, obviously not. That's why we built Stonehenge out of massive great stone cricket stumps. And, uh, well, statistically, there were a lot of LBWs in Bronze Age cricket. Hard to get bowls because the bales were so hard to shift off the top of the stumps. But LBW, always in play. Uh, Jez asks if John Noakes came back from the dead. He probably wouldn't get in the England... 11 before Stokes or Wokes, but do you think he would also get in ahead of folks? Well, for those of you unaware of his work, uh, Noxy uh, was a former children's TV presenter in the 70s and 80s, and indeed uh, adult TV present, not ad not that kind of adult TV. Uh, anyway, he was famed for his unassisted climbing of Nelson's Column, and that is just the sort of risk-taking, damn the consequences, we don't care if traditionally you don't climb Nelson's Column during a test match, we're going to do it anyway, approach that this England likes. Noakes plays batting at a new position of 6.3 and fielding up Nelson's column directly behind the bowler's arm. I had lots of questions about the declaration on day one, England declaring 393 for eight. Questions such as why, just why? Well, such decisions are judged on results. And again, it didn't work. England didn't get a wicket on that first evening. And the six overs they could have batted might have brought them something between 30 and 50 runs. They just hit line for 20 in and over. It's possible they could have hit him around some more, maybe even dented his baggy green confidence a bit. Or it's possible he'd have got them out and uh, started the series with a six foot. But if you assume that England scored another 36 runs at that time and Australia didn't score the 14 that they did score when they batted those four overs, that's a 50 run shift in the game. Then England would almost certainly have declared in the morning to bowl under the cloudy skies of uh, of day two and let me run the simulator yeah in fact then they would have skittled australia for just 67 or maybe warner would have uh, smashed a triple century by t who knows i and many others thought that with only four overs to bowl the potential upsides were not enough to justify the downsides it didn't really move the game on because australia as i said would have been batting at 11am the next morning anyway, assuming Stokes had declared. And whilst it was making an aggressive statement, they could also have made an aggressive statement by continuing to clobber the Australians all over the place in the last few overs. It might have been a 440-run day then, and that would have been an equally massive statement as getting one or two wickets. Or maybe, as I said, Lyon would have got up 6-4. Maybe Root and Robinson would have batted all of day two, and England could have declared to give Warner and Kawaja an awkward half hour on the second evening, facing 850 on the board, having just watched England's number 10 score a sensational double hundred and Joe Root smashed Brian Lara's test record score of 400 to oblivion. Let's assume that would have happened. Then what? Well, Australia's is not winning the game from there. I can tell you that for free, uh, as this podcast is also 
free. The stats on the declaration, Stokes has declared and lost twice in England's last three tests. Only two other test captains have ever had two losses after declaring in their entire careers. Freddie Brown, who captained England in the early 1950s, both of those declarations were with nine wickets down to try to take advantage of a difficult pitch. And Bishan Betty of India in the 70s, and one of those was against West Indies because he'd had three players injured and didn't want any more to get hurt. Only once before these last three games, when Stokes declared in Wellington and Edgebaston and, and ended up losing, had an England captain batting first declared in the first innings and lost. That was Flintoff in the Adelaide Test of 2006-07. I still don't want to talk about. Stokes, two in his last two opportunities. But, and this is a but of sufficient size to get Sir Mixlot interested in cricket for the first recorded time, he could and probably should have won and almost did actually win both of those games. So, again, I'm not sure we can read too much into it. Stokes's risks have brought England huge rewards over the past year and a bit. He doesn't just have credit in the bank. He pretty much built and set up this entire bank himself. This one came from Dave, who asked, with the fact that there are so many people saying England should bat properly, whatever that means, to win the Ashes, I'm intrigued on what the batting averages of all the players are pre-Stokes compared with since Stokes took over. My gut feeling, says Dave, is that most, if not all, have improved. While your guts are working beautifully, you must be eating a lot of very healthy yoghurt. I've made a spreadsheet looking at players who played at least four games, both under Stokes and McCullum and before they took over, over the previous three years. Uh, Root is up hugely from averaging 46 from 2019 till Stokes took over. 67 since then. Bairstow is up massively, although his improvement did begin with that uh, Sydney test and 100 in the West Indies. Pope up significantly, so too folks. And Ollie Robinson with the bat. Broad and Anderson up a bit. Crawley basically unchanged. Leach uh, down. I think we can probably accept that. The only major batter whose average has come down since Stokes took over, and not by a massively significant amount, from 38 to 34. A different Dave asks if Australia can win without Smith and Labuschagne doing anything. Do England have any hope when they actually show up? Well, that is assuming that they do show up, or at least show up to the extent that they have shown up in the past, particularly in 2019. This was the first time Australia has won a test in England without Steve Smith scoring a first-inning century since his debut test against Pakistan at Lords in 2010. But in his last six tests against England, this one and the five in Australia 18 months ago, he hasn't scored a century and has averaged 26. His previous 20 tests against England, he'd averaged 80! 80! Write it down and marvel uh, with 11 centuries. Labuschagne has not scored 100 in his last nine tests and only two half centuries, averaging 33. That's since the start of the South African series last December. He averages 70 in Australia, but 37 outside Australia with only 117 away tests. So there are some glitches in their stats that suggest that it's not an absolute given that they will come good. Will they show up? Probably, but not definitely. As I said, stats can tell you what has happened what might happen, but not what will happen. Brainsy asks, were there any intrepid pigeons at Edgebaston? No, uh, they were too busy crapping all over the statues of questionable historical figures we have in this country. It's wokeness gone mad, I tell you. These pigeons are trying to eradicate our history. Uh, J-Mac asks, did Australia win that test or did England lose it? Well, as I sort of hinted at, both and neither. Australia did a lot to lose this game. England did a lot to win. The actual result swung on essentially a lack of ruthlessness by England. Some quite bad wicket-keeping errors uh, through the game by a, a perfectly good wicket-keeper but one who'd kept in just four Red Bull games this decade before this Test match, and also a staggering innings by Pat Cummins. And finally, from Comrade Chris, my question is this, is there a better word to sum up the result than bollocks? Um, 
nuts, maybe? Uh, that's the only one I can think of. Thank you for listening to the Bugle Ashes Zoltzcast during the Edgebaston test. Uh, we'll be back with a Lord's preview before the Lord's test and then daily during that game. And what a marvellous, soul-enrapturing start to the series this was. Five days of tension, brilliance, flaws and a philosophical battle of ideas that ended up with cricket beating both Australia and England to emerge as the winner. So we go to Lords with a series intriguingly poised at nil-nil. Thank you for listening. I've been Andy Zaltzman. Goodbye. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. 